0: All right, this is Ricky, and this is Brendan, and you're listening to A Gentleman's Disagreement.
1: What I wouldn't give for the hope I used to find in a case of lions' head and folks of different minds, because even though it did not share the opinions we share, all that American ideal, friends made over arguments in an early morning buzz, need an early morning buzz.
0: All right, Brendan, it is Sunday, early afternoon here, June the 18th. Um, happy uh, Father's Day to all the fathers out there. We're uh, stealing a little bit of time from our dads to uh, record this podcast, but, um, you know, I'm sure they'll understand it's for the, for the for the greater good. How are you doing?
2: Doing well. Yeah, just echo what you were saying. Happy Father's Day to everyone out there, in particular, my father for my mom will pass along my wishes to him as unlike my mother, he's not a huge listener, which is fine. But uh, happy Father's Day to all the fathers out there. I know that there are some new fathers that in, in our lives that give a you know particular shout out to for you know those people that are that are newer fathers this maybe celebrating their first father's day this year and certainly the fathers that have celebrated for five, ten, fifteen, twenty, thirty, forty years in, in our cases, um shout out to all of them hopefully they're having a great day and a great weekend.
0: Yeah, definitely. In addition to my dad, who will probably hear this at some point, but maybe a week or two behind. Shout out to my brother-in-law and my father-in-law, who is a friend of the pod and will probably uh probably hear this sooner than later. So make sure I get that one
2: in there too. <laughs> Absolutely. All right. Well, with that, what are we uh what are we talking about this week? So in addition to today being Father's Day, there's another – this is a long weekend because tomorrow is Juneteenth, the third time that this has been a federally recognized holiday. Two years ago, Ricky, when it was the first time that Juneteenth had been recognized as a federal holiday, you and I did what was not only one of our most listened to episodes of all time, but I really think one of our better episodes of all time called uh, The Things We Never Learned. And I would encourage people, anybody that's a new listener in the last couple of years to go back and and listen to that, because in that episode, you and I talked about how, despite being incredibly fortunate with our educations, which overlapped for a significant period of time, but also diverged. And we were at different schools, pre-high school, different schools for college and graduate school. We didn't learn a lot of the things about Black history and about American history that we have come to learn as adults. And so we talked a lot about that two years ago, and two years later, a lot has happened. And obviously, President Biden making Juneteenth a federal holiday came in the wake of the George Floyd murder in particular, but the Black Lives Matter protests that came out of that. And at the time, Ricky, you and I talked, and we had Ollie on for one of those episodes where we talked about how how – And if, is this movement different because people have been calling for increased justice, uh, increased racial justice in all of our systems, including police and and our court systems, our education systems, our housing systems. Is this going to lead to to change, to significant change? I think it's really debatable two years later if if it has. And so we're going to talk about... Some of those issues that have come up in the past few years, how we're still seeing you know, the country struggle with this issue of, of race and reckoning with racial justice. I anticipate that this conversation is probably going to be meandering a little bit, as we tend to do in general. But with an issue like this in particular, some of the things that we're going to talk about are the reparations study and potential bill that um, is going on in California. We're going to talk about the candidacies of Republican candidates, Tim Scott and Nikki Haley, and how their views on race contrast markedly with former President Obama. And then something we also did in that episode a couple of years ago is to, to educate ourselves and maybe our listeners as well, highlight a couple of Black American figures that maybe have fallen a little bit through the cracks in history. And maybe, again, that might just be for you and I, but at the least, it's it's for us to educate ourselves and each other, and hopefully there are some people out there that maybe learn a few things from us highlighting these figures as well. Yeah,
0: definitely. Well, looking forward to getting into it.
2: Yeah. Before we do, quick reminder that the podcast is brought to you by the hardworking craftsmen at Cannon Hill Woodworking. They've been building handcrafted, high-end custom tables and in Destin Boston since 2018. That's Cannon with two Ns. You can check them on Instagram or visit them online at www.cannonhillwood.com. Happy Father's Day to their founder and our friend, Zach Hardoon. And uh, Cannon, the guys over Cannon Hill, Ricky, they wanted to remind us that George Washington didn't cut down a cherry tree so that you could buy an overpriced engineered wood table in a factory made overseas. Buy local. Buy Cannon Hill. Wow. I
0: mean, could can be better said. <laughs> All right, let's get into it. All right. So back in 2021, um California organ like the state of California organized a task force to kind of study the concept of reparations, like how they would calculate um, the amount that should be distributed and like how they would to really just sort of study the idea of reparations and start to think about hey, if we're gonna do this in California, what is the best way to do it? How do we think about um who should be eligible and then yeah, how much money should they receive or are the reparations in the form of money, that sort of thing. So they underwent a very extensive, um, process. And obviously as this started over two years ago, and now, and now we're in, in June of 2023, um, sort of by the end of this month, they're expected to kind of release the official findings and recommendations, um, at this point, if you've heard of this, like you might be seeing this number one point two million being floated around um as if the that's the recommendation that one point two million should be paid there that's a little bit jumping the gun, I guess <clears throat> well first the any recommendations would then go to the California House and Senate, and then any kind of bill out of those would have to be passed by the governor. So there is like a long, it's not as if this is coming um, tomorrow. And yet the findings are very interesting. And um, I think we were sort of chatting offline. It's like a lot of these things will happen in a state like California or maybe a more liberal state like Massachusetts. And then the question is, okay, well, how is this the right, did they sort of do this the right way? And like, are, is this kind of applicable more broadly Um, so that number, the 1.2 million, like what, where does that come from? I guess they tried to do this in a very like quantitative way rather than kind of qualitatively listing potential harms and possible harms. They, uh, basically used a, a set of economists to try and model the, uh, impacts like the financial impacts of, um, a history a legacy of of racism obviously slavery which is sort of the the focus of this type of reparation bill um but also sort of the resultant uh inequality um for over the past 100 years and then they've also like tried to establish who should be eligible obviously California being one of the later states added to the union has like a very different history with <laughs> Slavery in the United States as it wasn't ever a slave state per se, but many slaves were brought there um, over the years and uh, obviously eventually settled there. But then, you know, we know the more recent history of L.A. riots and Rodney King and um, and and sort of all, all, all of the things that come along with it. I guess before trying to get maybe more into some of the specifics, what were your initial impressions um, when you when you kind of heard about uh, sort of the findings, what the task force has been up to, um, and where it could go from here.
2: Not surprised that it came out of California. California, the legislature has done a number of things in the name of equity and equality over the last few years. But I will say, California is not alone. And in 2022, here in Boston, Mayor Wu created a reparations task force similar goals to study like the history and effects of slavery and racial discrimination here in boston massachusetts first state to abolish first like the original colonies to abolish uh slavery back in the early 17 i think 1783 but as the reparation task force like their goal points out that that doesn't mean that all of a sudden things things were equal here we certainly know that in, in boston we'll talk more about that in generally. But, so, a lot of thoughts. California is, the legislature at least, is trying to make things more equitable in their state. In 2018, they passed a law that required a balance of, like, uh, of genders on boards of, like, public corporations. And in 2020, they included... uh, now, it not, was not only about gender, but it was about race and, and, and sexuality. And uh, both of those have been at least enjoined, if not struck down, by courts. So I think that's a really interesting point. You said that like this task force not only does it have to get to the California legislature, but then it has to go to the governor and then it has to survive court challenges. It seems unlikely that these measures would survive court challenges. But whatever, before getting into, like, I guess, putting aside whether or not this is ever likely to happen. It's an interesting question about reparations in general. And I I think it's something that I've thought more about in recent years. Ricky, if you had asked me five years ago, I would have unequivocally said no. Um, And the reason for that is that it just fundamentally doesn't seem fair. (laughs) Which I think if you are... uh, that, that probably seems like a ridiculous statement coming from a, a white man. I understand. But like, what's fairness? And what do I know about fairness? <laughs> yeah, which is a totally fair point. But I think, Ricky, when you think about what it is, right, like it's you're giving money to certain groups of people based on their race. And when you look at the country, you could say that like slavery has been over now for what, 260 years that... Since the 1960s, the Civil Rights Act and the change in immigration, we've had a huge influx of people of all races to this country. And even just the, the way that the country changed throughout the 1900s, but again, particularly after the 1960s, where you have so many immigrants from all countries that were not necessarily directly benefited by slavery here in the United States that faced all sorts of different challenges. And so I think on its face, when you look at your poverty of white people or Hispanic people or Asian people, and you say that, like, why, why should people, you know, black people get money? It doesn't, it doesn't seem fair. And especially if you would point to like my grandparents, your parents, right? They come over, they, they were working with, with nothing. I imagine like very, very little money. They had enormous challenges to overcome themselves and people of all races have done that and have kind of pulled themselves up by their bootstraps and gotten, you know, achieved the American dream. And it just seems like this is the antithesis of that, to just like then hand a very specific set of people money. Upon further review, I I think there's a good case to be made. Because I think that black people, black Americans are just, like, their issues are separate from the issues of every other race here in this country. And that that's, to me, that's almost inescapable if you think about it, if you think deeply about it, and that black poverty is different than white poverty or any other kind of poverty. And so while we can debate the, the best way to do it, the amount of money it's going to cost, yeah, I I think it's something we should – we, we as a country have to seriously be considering. And in that, in that point to come like all the way back to California, while I'm not sure that it survives the process, I don't – I have serious doubts about whether it ever takes place. I give them credit for at least trying to reckon with this.
0: Yeah, I think that is – that's a really – Interesting, or I think, well, I think that's a really uh, personal sort of reflection on how your own views on this issue have kind of evolved over time. Um, I think in a, in an odd way, mine have maybe evolved, not quite in the other direction, but I think my worry, my concern is that money in and of itself will not be enough to fix the problem. And I wonder if it's not like if, okay, you know, we we basically figure out some way to do kind of one-time payments for basically a generation of people if we still haven't been able to address some of the underlying issues than what happens 25 years from now, 50 years from now. I think that's, that's kind of where I've been struggling with this concept, but I think to your point, most people really who, are, you know, maybe they've looked into it a little bit or maybe they've only, you know, started considering it, get caught up on this idea of fairness And I think that from a perception standpoint, like regardless of whether or not is the right thing to do, I think the fairness question is a really good one to, to like, like that's the argument
2: that you have to sell before you move forward with something like this. For sure. Because like I said, in, you grow up, I grew up with these stories of my grandmother coming over with a dollar in her pocket and then she works these really low paying menial jobs so that my my father, you know, had, t- can get a, be the first one in his family to go to college and then give me and my sister chances that they never had. And it's like, well, if she can do it, why can't they, you know, and it, and in like, and you think of so many immigrants from like all again, all over, but like Nigerian immigrants here in Massachusetts that are like so successful in, and you're just like, uh, and it's, it doesn't seem like a race thing, but it's, I don't think that we can have a serious like racial uh, reckoning with our history without just admitting that not only was the wealth of the country that the United States was built literally on like the backs of, of of slaves uh, literally and figuratively, but then since that time, government and whether people know this through the fair housing act the the redlining that took place the gi bill that denied black americans like the same access to education as did white veterans and there's so many things that were government sanctioned i think you just you you're burying your your head in the sand if if you don't acknowledge that but i yeah like this is this would be such a a seismic thing in American history that you do have to sell fairness. And I think that's, that's really difficult to do to your first point, Ricky is that was also my view. I I guess I failed to mention that. And aside from the fairness, my view was like, okay, so how do we, if we, if we think that reparations are unfair, but we also acknowledge that there are clearly huge disparities in in this country, how do we fix them? My point was always get to the root causes. And that's why i one of the reasons why I've done what I did, you know, it's you, you, you teach, you make sure that people have like access to great education, you make sure that people have access to like good lawyers and criminal justice system, you make sure they have access to housing and healthcare, and one of those like rising tides lifts all boats type thing, right? If, if you if you give people access to those basic things, everyone can see, succeed, and I still believe that. But the root cause, in some ways, Ricky, is for like the difference in black wealth versus white wealth which I think is sometimes it's like black uh, white families are somewhere between 10 and 20 times more wealthy than uh, than black families. And that's, I think it was uh, it's the median white family has $164,000 more wealth than a black family that, you know, on average it's $840,000 more uh, that a you know, a black family is three times more likely to have zero or negative net wealth than a white family is like the root cause is actually all of the discrimination that happened for, uh, I mean, through today, but seriously, through the nineteen sixties. And so, to me, my previous thoughts of the root causes being education and criminal justice and those sorts of things—that's true. And I agree with what you were just saying. But the root causes actually also what we did as a country for hundreds of years.
0: Yeah, I I, I think that is that's like the the false like a equivalency that seems so like, Hey, in America, it's a meritocracy. All you got to do is work hard and everything will like work out. And I had, you know, we have tons of these immigrant stories, obviously from India, but even, you know, before then Ireland, Italy, right. Like of people coming, as you said, I mean, er- everyone's grandfather seemed to have come here with a dollar in their pocket. <laughs> I'm not entirely sure how they all did it, but <laughs> Uh, maybe had a a couple extra dollars in a bank account somewhere and it hidden in a mattress that came with them. But anyways, the, that idea that, okay, yes, I can, I can just start to work hard and, and things will work out when not sort of put in tandem with, okay, but I don't have to worry about the police coming to like, you know, harass me every day on my way to work. Right. And that's like, you can obviously start in the early 1800s, but that continues today as we, you know, as we continue to be reminded of in instances like a, like a George Floyd. Right. So then, then there are just these both explicit and implicit ways that a specific community has been held back. Right. Like, I, I think that like the, the, the race analogy with like an actual foot race analogy with like the various starting lines, but then adding on to it like but somebody's also got to run with ten pound weights or twenty pound weights strapped to their back and you know you start to see how that compounds over the distance of this race and over generations and things like that and it's just that that piece of it. I mean, similarly with, you know, when we talked about when we've had conversations about affirmative action, it's like, well, like, you know, I personally didn't I don't feel like I did these things to other people. So why do I then suffer in order to sort of make these things right? And it's like, well, obviously, that's that's such a hard thing to come to terms with. And again, we sort of talk about this, like the capitalist ideals, like you're not supposed to be thinking about. What's right for other people, you're supposed to be thinking about what's right for yourself. And in some ways, I don't know, I guess, like, even after our discussion last week, I started to think about this more. It's like, yes, I can make decisions that benefit me now in the moment. It's like my short term versus my long term. But will I be better off? if I'm living as part of a society where everybody feels like the rules of the game are equal for them and that they didn't have to start the race like 20 miles back and are trying to catch up, right? Like, will that make things better for me personally? And I think in, in to some degree they will, right? Because beyond my own personal wealth, like safety and security and having a society where, you know, I go outside my house and I don't have to feel like, there are certain people who don't feel like they've been given an equal shot that don't feel like the society's rules play fairly to them. Right. Because that is, you know, when, I mean, that's kind of what we want as a society. When, when people don't feel, when, you know, the rules of the game feel rigged, we almost want a little bit of an upending of the system. And it's like, there are different ways to upend a system. And one of them can be to do like a, pretty massive redistribution of wealth. And then the question, of course, is like, you know, we've, we've had a government that's really helped perpetuate racism and inequality between races over decades. But, you know, we can even think about just the period post the civil rights movement, right. Even, even there, we have a bunch of, you know, with policing and And you know the effects of redlining that sort of were never addressed after you know post nineteen sixty five um and then that's how you you know fund the public education system right by your zip code it's you know it of course, like all right, well, we have a culprit, here's the government they gotta pay, but who pays the government we do so now it's like, well, okay, how do we how do we yeah i I don't know what the answer is. I'm I am really interested to see like how this conversation evolves, and I I think in looking more into it, obviously that the 1.2 million dollar number that was really like an economically derived. Like, how do we try and like from a data perspective come up? I I, and I haven't looked too much into the study, so um, I shouldn't I shouldn't be speaking as if I'm an expert. But I am interested to see a how they kind of quantified this harm. And that's, you know, really like how we do a lot of things in this society, right? Like if somebody does something bad to you and it's not exactly criminal, you sue them and somebody decides a monetary amount to kind of, to whatever, to get you back on even playing field. And this is, this feels like a lot like that, honestly. Um, So I'm interested to see kind of how the conversation evolves. It's yeah, it's one of those things where it's like, Okay, even if we all agree that we have to do something, what is that something? What are the effects of that something? And like how uh, how can we do it in a way that that sort of everyone's on board? Because it it is one of the I, I felt this way about universal healthcare too. It's like I think that in the end this will benefit sort of everyone, but if you don't sell it in the right way, if you don't execute it in the right way, you're just gonna have a solution that A is going to be intractable going forward. You kind of get a, it's like a one shot deal to do this thing. Right. And B it will be blamed for all the problems going forward. If it just, if it doesn't work the sort of the way that you intend it to. Um, So, yeah, I mean, I think it's a, it is high time that we like really seriously consider this as, um, as a way to, kind of reverse some of the some of the centuries of of harm that that as like a country we have done but it's it's so far from easy or over that yeah i guess it'll be i'll be following it closely
2: well that's part of the problem right is the farther away we get from it the almost the harder it is to do because you have more and more people saying as you rightly said that like my family didn't do anything you know like you you have more and more of those people in the united states rightly who were kind of being like this isn't me in 1989 john connors who was a congressman he represented detroit michigan introduced a bill in the house just to study uh, like the effects of slavery just to study it has never gotten even a vote on the house floor i think back two years ago Maybe five years, something like that. It, it advanced out of the House Committee for the first time, but never even got a vote. And it's been reintroduced. He's he's since passed, but now um, Sheila Jackson Lee from Texas, Congressman from Texas, introduces it every year. It's it's always been introduced. It's never even gotten a vote on the floor. So that tells you how far away it is in in some ways. Uh, but, but yeah, I was reading a, a Rand study that looked at, you know, how would you, what are some different, different ways besides reparations that we could maybe close this racial wealth gap? And they looked at all sorts of things, kind of like we talked about like root causes, like whether it's education, housing, healthcare, affirmative action, all those different things. And what they found is essentially that it it would be impossible. Like the wealth gap is, is so large between black households and white households in America that there's, there's nothing that, the, the gap will never close unless there's like a significant influx of, of wealth into those households. So that doesn't mean necessarily that we should do that, but like that if, if we decide that we're not doing that, we're just going to have to acknowledge that it's never going to close. And that's the thing where for decades since, you know, we, many of us, including myself, like to live in this idea that we're in this like post-racial society, post the civil rights movement of the 1960s, post the election of President Obama. But the wealth gap hasn't decreased in the last 60 years, hasn't decreased in the last 20 years. It's actually widened continuously. And again, we can be okay with that, but like we just have to acknowledge that then that, that we're okay with that.
0: Yeah. It's... <laughs> and, and yeah, I mean, there... It, I, I think that's like a, oh man, I don't even, I don't even know where to start. You know, we mentioned at the beginning that it be, sort of be a meandering conversation and it is one specifically because like the, like where, where do you, yeah. Where do you be like, what, what's the beginning? And then, and
2: then w- like, where do we see the end point? Yeah. And I think I went back in preparation for this conversation to an article that I knew ta Coates. I don't know if you've heard of him. He's a, an author here most famously for writing Between the World and Me, which is a line from um, a a James Baldwin poem. But this, uh, it's a great, great book. It's worth worth a read, but he wrote an article in 2014 in The Atlantic. It's a very, very long article. So if you're interested in looking it up, set aside a decent amount of time for yourself. But it essentially is like a case for reparations. And in it, he said, kind of like, Two things that we brought up here. One is that, I'll quote from the article, quote, broach the topic of reparations today in a barrage of questions inevitably follows. Who will be paid? How much will they be paid? Who will pay? But he goes on to say, but if the practicalities and not the justice of reparations is the true sticking point, then we have at least the beginnings of a solution, right? And I, I think all of the practicalities, whether in California or federally, are really legitimate. I don't know how you would do it. I don't know how you would do it, quote unquote, fairly, or if anybody would agree on what a fair way to do this is. But that's almost a secondary question. That's a process question as opposed to just an overall question. And then I think when you were talking about like the need to sell people, um, one of the things that Coates writes was um, he says, as surely as the creation of the wealth gap required the cooperation of every aspect of society, bridging it will require the same. And so that's one of those things where it's like, how do we get this racial wealth gap? Even white Americans that whose families have been in this country for hundreds of years could credibly claim, like, look, my family grew up in Massachusetts. We never had slaves. Like, we, my family never personally had slaves. The state didn't have slaves since we became a state. Like, how, how, even if I was here for hundreds of years, how would I benefit from it? The truth is... Not only did all of those families benefit from it, but all of us today still benefit from it because the United States is the greatest country, the greatest economy in the world. And why did it become that? Because of like the efforts, the work of Black Americans. Yeah,
0: yeah. I mean, I, or be, yeah, basically, the uncompensated labor is yeah. uh, is is definitely there. I, I I think on the side of the economy too. One of the reasons that California can do these kinds of things with the hopes of forcing sort of change more broadly, is it has a massive economy on its own. I think it's like top 10 in the world by itself, just as a state. Um the I think that idea of okay, we didn't have slaves per se. So therefore at least we shouldn't be culpable is like a really interesting One, because I think if I I think it's one of those things where like the complicity becomes just from being part of a society that did these things, even if you personally didn't do it or your ancestor didn't personally like participate, like that doesn't change the fact that they lived in a in a place where this stuff was going on. Ostensibly, they knew these things were going on and whether they turned a blind eye or or, or whatever, you kind of, it's hard to take, it's hard to quantify like how you benefited from somebody else being held back. But there is, right, like if there are only so many spots in so many places, if you take out a large chunk of the applicant pool, it helps you whether you want to admit it or not. And I think that's like the, that was always the, the sticking point. It's like, well, I didn't do this or I haven't done it, but we were all part of the system where this was being done. And so we reaped benefits that maybe, maybe if someone gave us the specific choice to do the right thing or do the wrong thing, maybe we would have done the right thing. But that doesn't sort of absolve us from this kind of responsibility. And I actually, I really love the idea of like, hey, if we can at least agree that something needs to be done then we can start to debate what the solution is. It's one, it is one of those things. And I think, I think even broadly to your point, like the question also has to be like, what is the goal? Is the goal specifically to reduce the racial wealth gap? Is it to ensure that everyone like has equal, like that we live up to our sort of ideals of a, a meritocratic society where everyone does have equal opportunity to do everything going forward? Like, is that what we want? Like, what is, what are we trying to achieve through reparations? Or is it just a specifically, like, it's a backward looking thing. We've, these harms have been committed. They need to be addressed. And this is how we address them, right? Like, it doesn't actually matter what the outcomes are, whether we actually reduce the, you know, racial wealth gap going forward is unimportant in a, in a society where if something, someone does something wrong. They need to be held accountable. In this case, it's basically we're all part of the system that did something wrong, and so that this is how we're holding ourselves accountable, right? Like I, I, I'm, I think I guess I'm agnostic as long as we can kind of come to a general consensus. But that to me seems very, very difficult. Um, I thought I did want to before we just move on touch on some of the like the uh, the task force came up with sort of a list of harms or things about sort of the last 2 200 plus years that have been kind of perpetuating inequalities in in this country and they start with obviously slavery but below that racial terror political disenfranchisement housing segregation which you touched on separate and unequal education which you also mentioned Racism and environment and infrastructure, which is an interesting one that probably doesn't get as much, uh, doesn't get as much publicity. Pathologizing the black family, control over creative, cultural and intellectual life, stolen labor and hindered opportunity, which we, which we covered a little bit, an unjust legal system, which I think we've only maybe scratched the surface on, mental and physical harm and neglect, and, and obviously sort of the big one, the racial wealth gap. So I I think as we continue to, like, as a country kind of grapple with this, um, it's important to think about sort of the broad ranging beyond just slavery and trying to understand that those, like, second order effects and, and really everything else that has come with it. Obviously, Juneteenth is a time that we think about this maybe, like, more specifically but it's really one of those things that we have to be thinking about uh, often um, as we sort of kind of move forward
2: with like any any kind of social policies. You're a really good point. And last thing I'll say on the reparations topic is this wouldn't be unprecedented in United States history, and we paid reparations to Japanese Americans uh, who were and who were victims of the internment uh, in World War II. So and again, I'm sure conservatives were listening to this are probably horrified by most of my takes throughout the throughout this. Is I thought you're supposed to be, uh, but that there was a commission created under President Carter in the late 70s to study the effects of of like whether or not government action was legitimate in terms of putting these Japanese Americans in internment camps. In 1983, the commission came back and pretty much like. Was like no, it wasn't. We found very little, if any, evidence of Japanese Americans who are disloyal or traitors to the country to justify such a an invasion. Not an invasion of privacy. That would, that's such a you know invasion of civil liberties and, and freedom and freedom really and restrictions on freedom. And in 1988, President Reagan. Was the one that authorized reparations to the survivors of Japanese and who who were in Japanese internment camps. It was twenty thousand dollars at the time, which I think is something like fifty thousand dollars today. So, it's. And I think in many ways, like the process is much easier because you could pretty, it's a smaller number and you could pretty readily identify who those people were. And I think we like, it was this one incident where we could all be like, yeah, that wasn't great. You know, like in hindsight, we probably shouldn't have done that. Um, and so there's for so many ways it's easier, but it's not unprecedented. And I don't think it's something that is just this like radical left thing. I think that President Reagan, to his credit, was like, oh, the government messed up. It's, you know, if if the government's going to be involved, then we should at least try to correct some of the problems that, that we did.
0: That's yeah. Really interesting example. I did not, did not know about that.
2: All right. Uh, so I think that's going to wrap up our discussion on reparations. If there's so much more to it. It is something that I'm sure I, I personally will still like wrestle with, uh, but I want to get into a little bit more of this like personal responsibility versus, uh, like historical and like systemic racism, I guess you could say, because I think those are in some ways have become at odds with each other. So let's let's take a quick break and when we come back, let's let's talk about that. So you and I have talked about this idea of this meritocracy, and we've talked about it in the in the context of the Supreme Court recently, where Justice Thomas, who is for a long time was the only black justice on the court now has of course been joined by justice Jackson, but has long really led the charge to strike down laws based on race. And I'm sure we'll talk far more about this once the Supreme court decisions around affirmative action come out any day now, but justice Thomas, it's been one of those kind of great sources of irony in a lot of ways where like the only black justice on the court has been the one leading the charge to, get rid of any classifications based on race and his one of his main arguments is that such classifications actually hold down black people in particular, but racial minorities or minorities in general where look, look at his own life, the things that he overcame growing up poor in in Georgia and and overcoming those to to rise to the highest level that you possibly could in his profession, being a, a justice of the Supreme court of the United States. And also when people argue, our lawyers come and argue that like, look, uh, all children benefit from diversity education. He's pretty much like, well, you're saying that like a, an all-black school can't be super successful on its own. Like, wh- why do black kids need to be around white kids to be successful or feel good about themselves? And I think, whatever, I don't want to get into the merits of the argument, but certainly a lot of people agree with those arguments. And so one thing that caught my eye this week was in exchange, not directly, but between former President Obama and Republican presidential candidate, Senator Tim Scott, and former governor, UN ambassador, uh, Nikki Haley. And President Obama went on David Axelrod's podcast. David Axelrod is one of his former um, campaign managers and then advisors in the White House and now is on the CNN. And uh, President Obama said, quote, uh, people can be rightly skeptical when a Republican who may even be sincere in saying, I want us to all, all to live together doesn't have a plan for crippling generational poverty that is a consequence of hundreds of years of racism in the society. And Obama goes on to say that like candidates writing on this rhetoric of like can we all get along should also address an honest accounting of our past and present. It, and talked about the discrimination and says, quote, there may come a time when somebody in the Republican party is serious about actually addressing some of the deep inequality that still exists in our society that tracks race and is a consequence of our racial history. And if that happens, I think it'd be fantastic, but I haven't seen it yet. And this is kind of a lot of like echoes what you and I were just talking about on on the previous segment, but Scott responds again, the Senator Tim Scott, who says, quote, Let us not forget that we are a land of opportunity, not a land of oppression. Democrats deny our progress to protect their power. The left wants you to believe faith in America is a fraud and progress in our nation is a myth. The truth of my life disproves the lies of the radical left. We live in a country where little black and brown boys and girls can be president of the United States. The truth is we have had one and the good news is we will have another. And then uh, former governor Nikki Haley responds by saying... President Obama sets minorities back by singling them out as victims instead of empowering them. Her parents didn't raise her to think that I would be forever a victim. They raised me to know that I was responsible for my success. And this is, I think, a really clear line between very accomplished, very intelligent people. In the cases of Obama and Scott, both Black Americans, and, and Haley's a, an Indian American. And I just thought like that dichotomy, those are two very different takes on race in
0: america
2: yeah and it's it's
0: so interesting though that they continue to fall into this like that it is like a dichotomy that there is you you know you either believe in one thing or the other and that like both can't simultaneously be true which to me it seems so almost so obvious that it is both that like and then solutions have to recognize that both there is an element to agents. I mean, like, this is also kind of like a philosophical, like, how do you yes. view yourself in the world? Am I am I the controller of my own destiny or do things happen to me and I'm largely kind of like a victim of destiny, right? Like that is uh, like a sort of a philosophical, almost like personal, like, how do you think about these things? But it's so, it, it's like, yeah, obviously, when I think about, you know, prominent uh, Black Americans who have made great achievements, so many times I think about what they've achieved in spite of all of the things that have, like, potentially made it, you know, would ostensibly make it harder for them to achieve those things. And it doesn't take a genius to sort of look at what is the proportion of the country that is Black and, like, what is the proportion of Black scientists, what is, the you know, Black congressmen obviously they're not being elevated to these same levels at the same same sort of percentage that that white Americans are or even Asian Americans right like it's it, it certainly not like a one <clears throat> or to only sort of single out white Americans as kind of the benefactors of of this legacy of racism i guess at this point but the the idea that it's got to be one or the other that you're either kind of a victim of the system and you have no and you can't do anything against it while well, someone who did achieve like a Tim Scott is going to be like well that's not true and then on the other side it's like well yeah obviously look around you though you're the exception not the rule and so what is that tell you about does that really mean that everybody else like no one else was interested in not obviously not no one but like the vast majority are not interested in success or achieving something beyond the bare minimum like that seems ridiculous too and so figuring out yeah it's it is so weird that that these have to be like polar opposites in terms of how we construct policy it feels like it should be something where we recognize both and that we are the land of opportunity, but we have also been the land of oppression. And like, we need to come to terms with that.
2: Yeah, I totally agree with everything that you just said. And I think that the experiences of Scott and Haley and Thomas and so many others are great examples of the progress that we've made as a country and it goes to credit all of the, the people that came before them, the Thurgood marshals of the world and the Jesse Jacksons of the world and Edward Brooks of the world. Um, but that doesn't, like you said, like that doesn't mean that there's broad equality in society. And that's what's, I think it's, it's really interesting because Haley and Scott are both running on this. Like my example, my life disproves the radical left. Tim Scott just said that directly. And I think that's a really interesting point. I think it makes a lot of people feel comfortable because they could be like, "See, not only do we have these great candidates, uh, whether it's Scott or Haley or Ramaswamy, that we can be like, we have great diverse candidates. We're not, you know, a party of belief system of of racists. But then they also kind of like placate us, and that we they don't make us too uncomfortable. And I think that's also why we we haven't talked too much about this. Now I'm going, Ricky, but uh. Like, what are you talking about, Dr. Like Martin Luther King? And, and we love to embrace his, like, oh, peace and nonviolence and, and judge people by the the content of the character and not not the color of their skin. But no, like, white people, they don't really like to talk about Dr. King's, like, more radical beliefs or don't like to talk about, uh, you know, this reason that Dr. King has a holiday and uh, Malcolm X does not. And so I, I do think that's a really interesting point. I want to go back to... Uh, the Coates article that um, I, I referenced earlier and between the world and me, I misspoke. I said it was a Baldwin poem. It comes from a Richard Wright poem. Uh, but he he starts the article by talking about like acknowledging that, like we made tremendous progress as society and to, to forget about that progress or to not acknowledge that is wrong. But he also talks about that this is reparations is more than about the money. Kind of like what you were saying. It's an actual like reckoning with our history. And we love to, Tout our fond founding fathers of like you know the Washes and the Jeffersons of the world and their their words, their examples, their ideals, and he's pretty much like yeah, that's great. We should continue to do that, but then we can't in the same breath being like when somebody's like oh, but like you know, Jefferson owned slaves and probably like if not raped, like probably you know abused one of his his sexually abused or took advantage of one of his slaves and had a bunch of children with her and. You're like, well, that that's a long time ago. You're like slavery, it was like 250 years ago. But it's like you can't, it's he's, and this is kind of I feel like you Ricky, you can take this wherever you want to go. But when when we talk about like reckoning with all of our history, is not to say that black people in this country have always been victims. Like we don't I don't want black kids today growing up to think that they're victims in society because they have so many great role models, so many great examples in in the arts, in, uh, you know, in in politics and sports and entertainments and science and engineering to look up to because so many great black people have done so many great things in this country, but to, to only focus on that and not focus on slavery and Jim Crow and uh, segregation and redlining is like, it's not doing a service. And so like, that's why when we talked with uh, Dr. Madras about like academic freedom, we focused on a lot of really i would argue the the limiting of dissenting conservative voices in higher education now which again i still believe is happening but we also talked about how the response to that in states like florida and north dakota and texas has been well now you can't teach like black history at all and which is or like there are certain parts of american history you just can't teach and it's like that's what what is that what are we doing yeah no i mean the the
0: right the I think we've talked about the idea of like the the narrative. What is the story that you're trying to tell? Is it that you know we live in this country that as long as you you know try try your best and work hard and like you can achieve anything that you want, right? Like we have plenty of examples of people who have done that, uh, and as I mean, as you rightly noted. They act, you know, it spans the the gamut across races and genders and 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 all of that. But on the flip side, you can tell a totally different story if you focus on sort of the the kind of the the darker side of things, and and that's the. I think that is the the problem for us is that as people we understand things kind of linear linearly through these. Narratives and the way that you construct the story is so important. How you're taught about the history is so important. And this problem that we have in that, like, so many of these things seem contradictory. It's like, I can't make the story where we're this beautiful land of opportunity, but also where this, like, land of of, you know oppression and slavery i can't i can't square the founding fathers writing this incredible declaration of independence this constitution and our bill of rights while also holding slaves and sort of being okay putting in this little like you know the the three-fifths doctrine and that kind of thing so it 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 never yeah i mean and obviously the older you get the more you get comfortable with these nuances and these gray areas but when you're when they distill them to like the quick hits facts for like the easy to read us history for children it doesn't it doesn't square because there's so many things that are uh that are contradictory for us to try and pull through but that's that's kind of like the That's actually like the good stuff. Like we don't necessarily need to perfectly be able to put this in our understanding of what's good and what's evil. Like we can, we can be in the gray area and just like understand, all right, this is the makeup of our society today. Where do we want it to be 25, 50 years from now? What do we need to do to get it there? And it's like some of the questions that the politicians ask each other in terms of, well, like, is it, is it, you know, how, how can it be that we have oppression in society when look at me or, or how could it not be that we have oppression in society when look at these statistics? It's like, okay, like, we just need to decide like where we want to be 20 years from now and like what it is that we need to do to get there. And yeah, I mean, part of that is a reckoning with our history but it's also got to be an understanding that like there is no perfect solution and it would yeah, like towards a more perfect union. Right. We just have to make those incremental changes and keep evaluating and keep trying to like understand, you know, where we are today and where we're where we're trying to go. And that. I don't know, there seems like there's like an inherent tension, but there it almost feels
2: like there shouldn't be. Agreed. The The only way, this is why I love history, because like the only way I feel like you can really move forward positively and knowingly is like by studying history and knowing what happened in the past. And that's why it's been frustrating for me to watch so many people on the right try to prevent the telling of our full history. And that's what I've always, it was, you know, and I'm sure I didn't, I'm sure you know my biases came through when I taught history, but my whole thing was try to tell the whole story and then let kids as they grow up, think what they want about it. And I, I I would hope all teachers at least try to do that. I'm sure, like I said, I failed at it many times and others, despite their best efforts (laughs) failed too. but if if that's the mindset of just tell the whole story and like you said on, on a positive note, like as you get older, you get more comfortable with gray areas, but you also get like a little more settled in and you like when people kind of come to you with these new ideas or a new interpretations or a fuller story of history. Like that's not what I learned, you know, like that's not, this is like this, this new thing out there, but, and so I think that's what it's hard where people get entrenched of like, it is easier to see things literally and see things in black and white and see things that we talked about with the lib as good and bad. And when people challenge that it's, it's hard. And that's where I think like this, these are not easy conversations. There's a reason why, we haven't like, we're still struggling to tell our full story.
0: Yeah. I think that's, that's well said, but in the, I guess in the vein of telling a full story, when we get back, we'll, we will cover two figures in history that you may or may not have heard of. Um, Yeah. I'm looking forward to seeing who you, who you got this year. So we did a segment like this a couple of years back. Primarily, I, I can't remember exactly how we introduced it, but for me, the genesis was that like whenever someone is quoting uh, a historical Black figure, nine times out of ten, they're doing like Martin Luther King. You maybe get a Malcolm X in there, right? There's like a handful of Muhammad Ali, Jackie Robinson. Like you've got maybe five or ten figures from pre say like pre 1960 that people can sort of reference or, or or would be familiar with like off the top of their head, but obviously black Americans have there. We've, we've had uh, black Americans in the United States since basically the advent of the country. And so the idea that there are only a handful that you, that we knew that I learned about in history class is kind of ridiculous. And so we were Sort of thinking about others that that we have come across um, over the years, but then also more broadly, like people that we didn't know. And so this year, um, I I chose someone who I I'm curious actually if you know the name um, Anne Pauline, nicknamed Polly Murray. No. Never heard, right? So okay, so I hadn't I hadn't really been. I hadn't really heard of her either. She was the first woman um, in her class at Howard Law School. So she graduated in 1944. So this would have been like right after World War II. And the reason that I chose her is she wrote this book um, called States Laws on Race and Color in like 1950. Um, And this basically just predated Brown versus Board of Education. Um, And so, obviously, the famous lawyer in Brown Brown v. Board was Thurgood Marshall. And that's who kind of we mostly attribute to the arguments that were made in that case. But it turns out that he actually was working with a team. Um, Part of his team was this professor who had taught this woman, Polly Murray. And she ended up writing this book about basically the, the... Historical challenges to Plessy versus Ferguson, the original separate versus equal doctrine, were focused on the equal section that like, hey, you can look at these two schools and the black school certainly doesn't have the resources of the white school. This is then therefore like does not sort of meet the separate versus equal standard. But the problem, of course, is that in order to argue that you have to argue it in every instance, meaning that any types of changes that you would get from challenges to separate versus equal are not broad and systemic. They only change those specific circumstances. And so she was the, I guess, his like after the fact kind of credited with this idea that we need to not focus on the equal portion. That actually doesn't matter. It's the segregation. That's the problem. And so she, and it was kind of a radical, I guess, a radical idea of that at that time that it it's not, that like you have the same in, in two different places and then you're, you're fine that actually the act of segregation is what is the violation of rights of, of black Americans. So that, um, I thought that was really interesting. Like she's, I, I asked you earlier, what a, what a doctorate of, uh, juridical sciences is, I think it's like the PhD equivalent for a for, for law she she re- she was the first african american to receive that from yale um she also got a masters in law at, at cal berkeley um taught for a long time was also uh referenced she she did a lot of work in uh women's rights and <clears throat> was referenced by rbg for a lot of her kind of early writings on discrimination on the basis of gender um I brought up Betty for She like kind of paled around with like a lot of these thinkers in the 1950s, um, including authors and poets, James Baldwin, Langston Hughes, et cetera. So um, a pretty interesting, I mean, she lived in it clearly an incredible life. I, I just thought it's, it's another one of those things. Now now it's even worse. I, I'm not going to remember who it is, but like the Watson and Crick who get credited for the, for the DNA helix they weren't actually like the ones to sort of see the picture first. They just kind of got the credit for it. And, and to me, sh- she fits in that um in that vein of, I mean, clearly being a brilliant person, but also, you know, Brown versus board of education. A lot of what we've been talking about today is possible because we've, we sort of accepted in post 1950 that separate could not be equal and that like that was fundamentally counter to how we were trying to develop as a country, which I thought was very interesting and certainly interesting to hear that it was was a bit of
2: a radical idea at the time as well. No, see, this is why I said at the start that this is education for us if for no one else. That's really cool. And someone within the law that I probably should know. And I love these stories of these people that are all just like super talented in their fields, just like all hanging out together, like uh, whether it's like, you know, law and uh, poetry and writing and, uh, you know, art and all of these things like that. I always just love stories like that, whatever it might be, or even when there's like athletes and musicians and everybody, and you're just like, oh, like this is just, you know, Tom Brady goes to see Novak Djokovic and Zlatani Ibrahimovic just sitting there. You know, it's, it's just cool to meet when people who are brilliant and talented get together. So thank you. I appreciate that. I am going to go with someone whose name I had heard, whose story I didn't know. And I learned of it more from a movie that I saw recently, Judas and the Black Messiah. Have you heard of the movie? I've heard of the movie. I I hadn't seen it, really. Neither had I. From from the time it had come out, I was like, ooh, that looks interesting. Just one of those things, like many movies, where I I just don't get around to seeing it. But uh, a few weeks ago, I was looking for something, and I came on that, and I was like, I do want to actually sit down and watch it. So it's the story of Fred Hampton, and that's the name I was like, oh, I'm aware of him, Black Panther Party, like that's something. But the movie was brilliantly done. So it's, uh stars Daniel Kalua who people probably know from – like uh, Get Out, get out. Uh, or he was in the Black, pa- the Black Panther movies. Uh, it, but he's he's brilliant. He ended up winning the Academy Award for Best Supporting Actor. Not sure why he was supporting actor, but uh, he's he's really brilliant in the movie. Um, Lakeith Sandfield, who is another great actor, is kind of the other protagonist of it. Uh, but whatever, I don't want to spoil the movie because I think it was fascinating. But anyway, it got me down this rabbit hole because the movie was so great, and I was so really taken with this Fred Hampton character that Kalua was playing. That I, I was looking into Fred Hampton a little bit, and so it tells this story of him of Hampton's ascending to the leadership of the Black Panther Party in Illinois. He was a, a deputy national chairman. Going back to like his early life, it started out where he was even when he was like in elementary school, he would host like neighborhood breakfasts at his house just for kids in the neighborhood and make make breakfast for them himself, which led to what what he started doing later in his life, where he was. I don't know. I'm sure people, when they hear the Black Panther Party, they have a lot of preconceived notions of who they are and what they did. But one of the things that they did often was like free breakfast. And so like Hampton was in charge in Chicago of providing like free breakfast to like children and families in there, which was so cool. stemmed exactly of like who he was as a young kid Um, after after he in high school, he. Um, often led like uh, protests uh, at one point, calling for like a walkout because uh, black students weren't eligible for like homecoming king and queen. Um, after college, he briefly studied at a junior college where he was studying law because he wanted to be able to kind of use or gain knowledge of law to use it in defense uh, against like the criminal justice system, against like pr- police brutality. Um, and he becomes active in the NAACP. Um, becomes an organizer through his like charisma and clue does a great job of showing this uh, of just like his force of personality he uh he's like a rising star Um, so he becomes a a member of the black panther party uh, rises quickly up their ranks and then in chicago he does this is what i thought was really cool and the movie touches on this but you can read more about it where he formed what was called the rainbow coalition where he went his goal was this kind of anti-racist, but um class conscious, multi-racial alliance. So he went into like the Young Patriots organization in Chicago, which was a bunch of uh, white people who were still kind of protesting and, and fighting for like against or fighting against like white poverty in, in the city at the time. And then he went to uh, the Young Lords, which was this group of young Hispanic people who were fighting against like particular causes of like whether it was poverty or discrimination against Hispanic people. And he went and unified all those groups under this banner of like the rainbow coalition. And as opposed to, uh, there were so many factors that were trying to get these groups to compete against each other. And he brought all of them together. It was like, Hey, if there's this cause for white people, we're going to go and support it or Hispanic people. We're going to be there and kind of expected the same thing from them. And so really, fought against like the gangs of Chicago to try to bring in like these these groups that were organized but organized around like really positive programs for their individual communities but the community at large um he you know this is you might be aware of this but uh unfortunately he he is he's killed he's really he's murdered by the FBI um and uh, under really this the CIA counterintelligence program led by um Hoover and so that's you know, without spoiling, that's kinda of how the I mean, sorry really spoil that. That's how the movie ends. And I was damn ah. and then it flash like they do those after things, it flashed up on screen and he was twenty one years old when he was murdered. I I could I literally couldn't believe it because the movie shows like this incredible life that he lived and all of the things he did in Chicago to make Chicago a better place for all people. And it was he was twenty one. I couldn't I was like that stunned. What a what a life that he he managed to pack into those years. Uh, they show this clip in the movie, which I thought was, uh, was really interesting. And so I'll, I'll just quote from it because like there is tape of him out like leading some of these marches and or, like um, demonstrations. And he says, quote, we got to face some facts. The masses are poor. The masses belong to what you call a lower class. And when I talk about the masses, I'm talking about the white masses. I'm talking about the black masses and the brown masses and the yellow masses too. We've got to face the fact that some people say you fight fire best with fire, but we say you put fire out best with water. We say you don't fight racism with racism, we're going to fight racism with solidarity. We say you don't fight capitalism with no black capitalism, you fight capitalism with socialism. Um, And so it's one of those things like an incredible life and another unfortunate example of our government cutting down a really promising life before he had a chance to really get going. But uh, I thought I would highly recommend the movie Look, highly recommend looking into Fred Hampton's life and example. And I, I've, I was like, oh wow, I'm glad I know more about him.
0: I think I think that's a that is a great. I I've also heard the name. I didn't really know much about his life. I do now realize that like the Black Panthers were it was like a, almost a footnote in not uh, in my history class about the civil rights movement it's like well here's this organization that we put in stark contrast to Martin Luther King right we want to hold up the idea of nonviolent protest and sit-ins and whatever and in contrast to that we you have the Black Panthers they were the violent sort of militant wing uh but it obviously it wasn't quite it wasn't always like that it wasn't quite like that and and uh, i think this I mean, as you said, you just learn so much by going back and really examining history. And it helps you figure out like where where we are today, because it, it's one of those things where, yeah, I mean, FBI, CIA. I mean, you like talk about the sort of the drug war in the in the late 60s, 70s. And so much of that was we need a pretense to start raiding people's homes and harassing people who we think are kind of upending the social order. And so here's like an easy, here's something easy that we can do with, with marijuana, right? Like there's, there's so much of that in our history that gets glossed over, but depending on how you want to tell the story, like these could be the pivotal facts instead. And the the history of the black Panther movement, I think is, is, is just one of those many things that it's like, all right, if we have to tell the whole story, let's tell it all. And I think that's a great, uh, that that's a great person to highlight. And now I've got a, now I've got a movie recommendation too to boot. So I'm, I'm excited to to check that
2: out. I recommend, I think that's the lesson I'm taking away from this conversation is tell the whole story and you and I and everyone, I think, has an individual responsibility to, to keep our eyes open to try to actually here, when people are telling you a different story and to look into some of this stuff more. And so I'm glad that this podcast gives us an opportunity to do a little bit of that and hopefully inspires me and maybe others to continue to do more of that.
0: Yeah, definitely. And just not to be afraid to, to challenge those things that we thought we knew and the, the, yeah. Yeah. I'm going to leave it there.
2: Beautiful. All right. Good, good talking, buddy.
0: See you later.
1: We stay up all night On Garner Avenue Debating all the issues of the day No agenda, not yet Talking heads running around till we forget where it was we began Some mornings you were away Some morning left your ego bruised But what I wouldn't give For hope I used to find In a case of lion's head Folks of different minds Because even though it did not share The pains we share On oh, that American idea Friends made over arguments In an early morning buzz Meet an early morning buzz Learn the hard way but to those who would die upon that hill Quiet truth is better than rain Somewhere along the line We seem to have forgotten The value of sometimes being wrong Some mornings you away, the Some mornings let your ego bruise But what I wouldn't give for the Hope I used to find In an occasional lion's head. folks of different minds, because though we didn't share opinions, we shared That American ideal Friends made all the arguments in an early morning buzz. I need an early morning buzz. There's hope behind the bluster, because though Main Street may not sell. Full of foes, just like you and me. And when we have trouble seeing, the human for the politics It's trying to find a better way to disagree. Some days you win, some days you'll leave your ego through. But what well, I wouldn't give for I used to find And chase the line's head. Folks of different mind because though we did not share opinions we share on that American ideal. Friends made of arguments and a nun morning buzz oh, what I wouldn't give for the whole I used to find in a case of Lions head. Folks of different minds because though we did not share opinions, we share that American ideal. Transmade over hoggy mats and an early morning buzz. I need an early morning buzz.